Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a scene that feels like something out of World War II and Putin's missiles wreaking fresh destruction and horror. This time at a railway station in the Donetsk region, where scores of people, including children, are dead after two rockets hit as thousands were trying to evacuate. A day before the airstrike on Kramatorsk railway station, a Ukrainian MP shared this video. As you can see, this was an area packed with civilians attempting to flee the war, including children and the elderly. John Sparks of Sky News was on the scene shortly after the attack with a close-up of one of the missiles and the haunting message written in Russian that was discovered on it. Just to focus on the words on the side of that missile, Zadeti, it means for children or for the children. Explosives from that missile have dropped here. They've just remember that there will have been hundreds of people queuing up to get inside the train station. We've seen it. And they will, well, they would have been killed, a lot of them. Um, terrible damage here. It's also blood. There's a small crater here, you can see, probably where the explosives hit, punched a small hole in the platform. This would qualify as a war crime uh, under the Geneva Conventions. This is an attack on civilians, clearly an attack on uh, civilians. Russia has denied carrying out the attack, with its defense ministry calling Ukraine's accusations a, quote, provocation. Joining me now from Lviv is Ali Velshi, host of Velshi here on MSNBC, and Maxime Borodin, a Mariupol city council member. And, you know, Ali, we seem to be reporting on what appear to be war crimes every day at this point. What is the point at this at this stage of Russia's denials? Because no one's listening. Yeah, actually, some people are. That's the problem. In fact, I had a conversation with a number of young people here in Lviv whose parents all either live in Crimea or Russia, and they're buying all of this stuff. Russia not only denied responsibility, but they came up with two different theories of why the Ukrainians were actually responsible. One is that it was a provocation. It was meant to get the West to give Ukraine what it wants in terms of weaponry. And the other one is that it was a Ukrainian-launched missile that didn't hit its target because it's very close to the, the line of control, if you will, between the Russians and the Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine. Both of those arguments are nonsense, but so are the arguments about how the Russians, the Ukrainians uh, killed their own civilians in Bucha. It is having some impact. It's having impact on Russian citizens. It's having impact in conspiracy theory circles in the United States. And remember, there are still some very, very powerful and populous countries in the world that are still on Russia's side of this thing. India and China, the two most populous nations in the world, are not pushing back on Russia. So the bottom line is they do get something out of denying this. I, I will say this, though, on the Ukrainian side, it only gets people more frustrated and perhaps more motivated uh, for Ukrainians to, to do everything they can to win this war. And they are prepared to do it, but they cannot do it without the weaponry that they are requesting from the West. And they cannot do it without the cutting off of oil supplies from Russia. You know, Maxine Borden, I want to get your response to that, but I want to, we're going to show this missile again. This is the missile Sky News. This is the imagery in there. It says for the children or for children written in Russian on it. When you hear that, you know, Russian, the Russian government is still lying and trying to blame Ukrainians as if Ukrainians would slaughter their own citizens, their own people, and just in, just to blame Russia. How do you feel when, as 
you know, Ali said, some people are listening, even in this country. I mean, on another network, um, the most popular host on that network said that it's childish to portray the war in Ukraine as a simple battle of good and evil, when what I'm looking at is evil. And he doesn't seem to see it that way. And he's telling, you know, two, three million people a night that. I wonder how frustrating that is for you. For me, it's horrible to see these scenes because uh, I'm sometimes monitoring the Russia state TV channels and look what they're showing to the Russians. And uh, it's uh, they blaming uh, Ukrainian uh, soldiers that then they uh, are in, 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 in answer what is done with Mariupol. They said that uh, it's not Russia. Uh, who destroyed Mariupol with bombs from their planes. That Ukrainian military is blaming for because they don't give up to Russians. If they give up, uh, it's Mariupol is still uh, be nice. It's uh, horrible to, uh, to hear this. And it's uh, always the tactics of the Russians. Uh, remember the MH17. It's the same ta- tactics. Uh, at, at first, they say they uh, shot down the plane, and then they said it's it's not us. The same situation with Kramatorsk. They at first they said in their public in the Telegram channel they said it's uh, it's uh, we hit on the Ukrainian soldiers, and then they deleted these uh, messages and say it's Ukrainian soldiers make these ter- terrible scenes. It's always the tactic of the Russia. And uh, the truth is uh, uh, there are no stop to killing civil people in Ukraine and in other European countries uh, before we stop the Russia. If uh, the Western uh, side is uh, don't uh, make a real strong sanctions, not with the steps, but all at once, gas and crude oil, all, all the things, which Russia are selling and getting money for the war. And if Ukraine uh, side don't get real weapons, jet planes, special systems, modern systems, not all systems, because if we don't get, the war continues and more people die. How much peaceful citizens need to be killed to uh, politics understand that there, there are not statistics, that someone, children, Someone friends, someone parents. It's not only statistics, not not numbers. It's people. Let, let me play for you. Um, you know, actually, very quickly, Ali, I want you to respond to that because you know we talked about this yesterday, and lucky I'm, I, we're so blessed to have you in this world um, and reporting for us because you're a finance guy, you're an econ guy, in addition to being just a brilliant reporter overall. This is the thing I don't understand because. You know, as Mr. Borodin has said, they could simply cut off the oil. And I get it. Russia needs—no one wants to pay more for petrol in Europe. But it seems to me that if you're not cutting off the oil, you're not all the way serious. There are are mass graves in Bucha. You can see it. They're there. And if that doesn't move you to say, whatever we we have to do, we're we're cutting off the oil. Why do you suppose they're not doing it? Yeah. Well, there's three problems. One is just plain old politics, right? Nobody wants to have their people pay more for uh, gas and get thrown out of office, which in Europe is actually a real possibility. Right-wing parties are surging. Uh, you saw, again, another victory for Viktor Orban in Hungary the other day. We're looking at elections in France. Uh, so that is a real issue. The second part is people are getting 
fatigued. They're getting tired of it, right? It's, 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 it's easy, easy to look away. You're tired of seeing the death and the destruction. It's horrible. So people choose to look away and say, all right, you know what? This is going to drag on for lots of years. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. And the third problem is, let's say, and there's, the, the Baltic states have cut off their, uh, their oil imports from, uh, from Russia. But let's say everybody in Europe actually does it. India's not doing it. And China's not doing it. These are countries that are consuming more and more gas, oil, and coal every day. Russia can create an entire system around the world with the republics that they control, the, the countries that they influence, like Georgia and Chechnya and the Central Asian republics and India and China and any other rogue nations that want to buy their oil a little bit cheaper or their coal, coal a little bit cheaper than world prices. So it's really got to be a, a, a globalized effort to say not just the European Union and NATO and the United States, but then those countries have to put pressure on other countries to say, you will ruin your trading relationships with Europe and with the United States if you continue to back channel your support for uh, for Russia. Russia makes most of its foreign uh, currency off of oil, coal and gas. If that stops, if that really gets cut off, Russia, Russia will be hobbled. But until then, Russia can keep on going. Too bad we don't live in a modern world where you could come up with some other way to fuel cars and planes and trains. Oh, and that's right, we do. Right. You could literally come up with new technologies, but this addiction, crack addict-like addiction to oil all around the world and refusal to pay attention to climate change, turns out it's also yep. allowing evil to thrive. Let me let me play uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. He's going to be on uh, an interview with him. is going to be featured on 60 Minutes this week. We are defending the right to live. I never thought this right was so costly. These are human values, so that Russia doesn't choose what we should do and how I'm using my rights. That right was given to me by God and my parents. What did you see in Bucha? Death. Just death. Death, just death. Uh, Maxime Borden, this is the reality for Ukraine right now. Ukraine is essentially paying in blood for the world's refusal to stop using oil. It's, it's, it's horrible that it sort of comes down to that. What would you say to these countries that are saying we can't find any alternative? We've got to buy the oil. I don't have what's to say uh, what what to say to this to to the people in these countries today they think they in safe position that the war is uh, far away from them but it's it's not like this uh, Russia is not is uh, not possible to stop without a war if they continue they continue to to Europe and the problems is uh, even now Europeans see how many peoples they uh, go go out from the Ukraine women's and children and Europe need to react to this situation and if, if it go further the problem is more bigger and another problem is Ukraine is uh, make a lot of uh, wet and uh, with this war a lot of countries have uh, impact on their food supply so it's not only about Ukraine it's about all civilized world and if uh, the uh, West today is uh, starts to ignoring this problem, and people start to how to say to look uh, away from the problem, so problem uh, not going anywhere. It's still here, and it's uh, moving forward to the yep. war. 
Uh, can we, as we leave, uh, and I thank these two gentlemen, Ali Velshi and Mariupol City Council member Maxime Borodin, very quickly, let's just play this, this very 13, quick 13-minute 13 soundbite about what NBC's Molly Hunter saw in Bucha on Friday. In the towns surrounding Kyiv, where Russian troops are completely gone for now, they've left evidence of atrocities here in Bucha. Officials say a new mass grave discovered right here in the shadow of a church. We're not tired of seeing it. Um, okay, coming up next on the readout. This is a big deal. One of the Proud Boys leaders is now cooperating and is expected to testify on the planning that went into the violence on January 6th. Also, time to celebrate at the White House as Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is formally introduced as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Plus. He's saying it's going too slow. He voted no. He voted no on Ukraine aid, and now he has the gall to say it's going too slow. Well, you got to see this if you missed it. Senator Brian Schatz eviscerating Josh Hawley, who made it clear this week that political gamesmanship is more important than the national security of the United States. And no surprise here, more don't say gay bills are being introduced. I will talk to a high school student who is speaking out. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. A leader of the Proud Boys, the right-wing militia group that's accused of organizing the January 6th Capitol attack, pleaded guilty today to two felony charges and has agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in one of the most significant cases to emerge from the insurrection. Charles Donahoe, the president of a local Proud Boys chapter, admitted to conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and to assaulting and impeding police officers. Video evidence from January 6th shows Donahoe admitting on camera that he stole a riot shield from police. Another video shows the defendant, among several others, completely overwhelming a thin line of law enforcement officers who were trying to block their advance on the east side of the Capitol. Now, I should also note that the graphics on that video were not added by NBC News. Donahoe is the first person in the Proud Boys leadership to plead guilty. He has close ties to Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio, who has also been charged for his role in the insurrection. Donahoe's cooperation could provide vital information to prosecutors prosecutors about the planning that led to the attack. With me now is our friend Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor. And Paul, this is juicy because so the Proud Boys leader, he's he's got all these charges he's facing. Conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstructing an official proceeding, obstruction of law enforcement, destruction of government property, assaulting, resisting and impeding certain officers. But here's the juicy bit. Donahoe. Oh, no, that was the, those are charges. Sorry, against Enrique Tario. That's what Tario is charged with. 
Donahoe, in his court documents, has admitted to the following. Donahoe understood from discussions that the group would pursue their goal of blocking the certification of the Electoral College vote through the use of force and violence in order to show Congress that we, the people, were in charge. Sounds damning to me. Your thoughts. Joy, the plea agreement is is chilling. In open court, Donahue confesses to organizing an attack on Congress and assaulting law enforcement officers. He admits that the purpose of the rally was to stop the certification of the election and that he understood that violence would, would help accomplish that goal. Joy, we had factions of the Proud Boys that were operating as a paramilitary unit, and Enrique Tarrio was the general, but Donahue had 65 people on his team. This is yet another reminder of how close we came to carnage on January 6th, even more carnage, carnage in the cost of human life and, and carnage in terms of our democracy. And, and here's the question of how you, as a prosecutor, would use him, because Enrique Tarrio is the head of the Proud Boys. He hasn't pleaded out yet. He's charged with all of these things, all of these conspiracies. The idea here is that they weren't just a bunch of losers who decided to arm up and go attack the Capitol, that they had a plan that involved understanding that what they were doing could stop Congress from certifying the election and keep Trump in power, right? Isn't he could If he starts to— point up and say, I've pleaded out, but look at that guy, look at that guy, look at that guy, how high could this go? Uh, it, it could go all the way to the top. And the question is, who is at the top? So uh, this guy is looking at six years, and, and that's why he flipped. Enrique Tarrio is now sitting in jail on those six felony charges, including obstruction. So, Joy, when prosecutors work a conspiracy case, they start at the bottom, they try to get folks to cooperate, and then hand over the real bad guys. So if we think of Thompson as kind of a, a, a lieutenant, let's say, and Tario is the, the general, uh, somebody else is involved. And yeah. again, the question is whether the Department of Justice will have the resolve to go all the way to the top. So if we're talking about the King's Court, let's now talk about the royal fool. Um, CNN is reporting, and this is CNN reporting, and I will uh, ascribe it to them. We have NBC News has not confirmed it, that Don Jr. texted Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff to Donald Trump, ideas for overturning the 2020 election. Now, here's the key. He didn't do that on January 4th, 5th, or even January 6th. He did it days after the election. Just after the election, it's very simple. Trump Jr. texted to Meadows on November 5th, adding later in the same missive, we have multiple paths. We control them all. Don Jr.'s strategy apparently was nearly identical to what played out, filing lawsuits and advocating recounts to prevent certain swing states from certifying their results, as well as having a handful of Republican state houses put forward state slates of fake Trump electors. Now we're starting to see planning, and they're not saying he wrote these emails, because again, royal fool, but he was sending them out, sending them to Mark Meadows. Your thoughts? emails that seem to concede that his father lost the election. And, Joy, this is a huge development because it goes to criminal intent. Uh, Donald Trump Sr.'s defense in the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial, was that he sincerely believed he had won and he was just trying to stop the steal. This text that Jr. sent out suggests that they all thought that the American voters were basically irrelevant on the issue of whether Trump had a second term. Uh, 
the text that we control them. And the key joy now is for investigators to find out who we include. Is it Daddy Trump? Is it Mark Meadows? Is it Jenny Thomas? Is it Steve Bannon? But many of those folks, whoever sent this text, whoever approved this text, seem determined and fully prepared to keep Trump in office by any means necessary. Long before even the December um, posts by, by Trump saying, it'll be wild, join me on January 6th. They seem to be planning right after the election, before the votes were even counted and certified. Let's go to one more headline for you, uh, Paul. This one shocked me today. The FBI lost a big deal case. This was the uh, plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, make a citizen's arrest of her, and maybe hurt her because they didn't like COVID restrictions. All three seem to be walking here. Two suspects found not guilty, deadlock on the other two, I mean, all four, I should say. This is a wowzer for me. What do you make of it? And what message does that send to far right wingers who want to do similar things? The message is if they get the right jury, they can get away with it. Joy, the evidence in this case was overwhelming. But as a prosecutor, you never know what a jury is going to do. And these defense attorneys were able to persuade that this violent act, this act of, again, trying to subvert democracy in a different context, wasn't a crime. And when folks look at some of the plea agreements in the January 6th cases and ask, well, why is the government settling for that? In part, it's because a conviction is a sure thing in a plea bargain. And again, when you don't know what a jury is going to do, sometimes as a prosecutor, you have to be willing to accept a, a sentence that you think doesn't really reflect the depravity of the crime or the seriousness of the crime just to get a sure conviction. Yeah. They didn't get that in this case in, in Michigan. And as a result, uh, we are less safe. These people are kooky and verdicts of acquittal embolden kooks. Indeed. Smells like jury nullification to me. It's like 1950s old, you know, trials of, uh, you know, all white juries convicting folks, acquitting folks of when you knew they did it. Um, Wow. Paul Butler, uh, thank you very much. Still ahead. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson speaks at the White House following her historic confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. And President Biden has a few choice words about the way that she was treated during her confirmation hearing. We'll be right back. It was a momentous day at the White House today, the culmination of a promise made and a promise kept following this week's historic confirmation of the next Supreme Court Associate Justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Judge Jackson, you will inspire generations of leaders. When I presided over the Senate confirmation vote yesterday, while I was sitting there, I drafted a note to my goddaughter, and I told her that I felt such a deep sense of pride and joy, and about what this moment means for our nation and for her future. But I knew the person I nominated would be put through a painful and difficult confirmation process. But I have to tell you, What Judge Jackson was put through was well beyond that. There was verbal abuse, the anger, the constant interruptions, the most vile, baseless assertions and accusations. In the face of it all, Judge Jackson showed the incredible character and integrity she possesses. 
It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. But we've made it. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. We have come a long way toward perfecting our union. In my family, it took just one generation to go from segregation to the Supreme Court of the United States. Amen, sister. And tonight, the White House released the first official portrait of soon-to-be Justice Jackson, taken by Lillane Foster, a black photographer from the Bronx. And up next, that is beautiful, up next, Hawaii's Democratic Senator Brian Schatz, 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 delivered a devastating takedown of Republican Senator Josh Hawley on the Senate floor, calling out his hypocritical and potentially dangerous obstructionism. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Insurrection booster booster Josh Hawley has been throwing a poop in his pants temper tantrum over President Biden's national security nominees since last September in protest of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. That included delaying the confirmation of a Russia expert, even as Russia's invasion of Ukraine loomed. Well, Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz absolutely annihilated him on the Senate floor yesterday after Hawley pulled his latest stunt on another nominee this week. But he is blocking the staffing of the senior leadership at the Department of Defense. And this comes from a guy who raised his fist in solidarity with the insurrectionists. And this comes from a guy who, before the Russian invasion, suggested that maybe it would be wise for Zelensky to make a few concessions about Ukraine and their willingness to join NATO. This comes from a guy who just about a month ago voted against Ukraine aid. He's saying it's going too slow. He voted no. And this final insult is that until, what, Secretary Austin resigns? That's not a serious request. That is not a 
reasonable request from a United States senator that until the Secretary of Defense quits his job, I'm going to block all of his nominees. That's preposterous. And coming from a person who exonerated Donald Trump for extorting Zelensky for withholding lethal aid. So spare me the new solidarity with the Ukrainians and with the free world, because this man's record is exactly the opposite. I yield the floor. Well, this, of course, follows a month where Hawley and his fellow members of the Republican goon squad made fools of themselves with their harassment of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. I'm joined now by Dean Obadala, host of the eponymous Dean Obadala Show on SiriusXM, and Christina Greer, associate professor of political science at Fordham University. Dean, any thoughts on uh, Josh Hawley? I mean, my only question is how he drinks without a chin. But um, do you have any thoughts on him or on Brian Schatz? First of all, Brian Schatz did a great job. I mean, Josh Hawley apparently took a break from researching child pornography to make this ridiculous speech about the idea we have to hasten the amount of military aid to Ukraine when Schatz called it out beautifully. But here's the bigger picture thing. Democrats, look what Brian Schatz did. He made a two-minute video that went viral. It's called messaging. It's the ultimate TikTok video. Senator Schumer, if you're watching, take an improv class and then do this kind of stuff because he has good words, Schumer, but no passion. Schatz showed Democrats here. You can go viral with content, just destroying yes. Josh Hall's hypocrisy, and everyone's going to share it. We need more Democrats like that, so I can't applaud it enough. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, the, the whole weird thing about Josh Hawley being like he lays awake at night worrying that his little kids are going to get child pornography on his computer. I'm like, I raised three whole children and I never laid up awake at night thinking about that. What's on your computer, bro? You better get some stronger passwords if that's what you're worried about. What's your parenting like? Um, Christina, uh, <laughs> uh, what are you Googling? Because how would they get it? Um, let's move on to some other members of the goon squad uh, that decided that they were going to harass the soon to be just uh Soon to be Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Lindsey Graham made a whole video, and I was in it. So here's a little of it. <laughs> Remember Amy Comey Barrett, how they came after her? Remember Kavanaugh? I do. To compare that hearing with what happened to Judge Jackson is ridiculous. She wasn't ambushed. I asked her hard questions. And she gave bad answers. When we nominate a qualified African-American woman, they filibuster her without apology. I can assure you, and she probably would be filibustered. When we ask hard questions of an African-American nominee who's liberal, all of a sudden we're racist. Okay, that was my, uh, he's following her around the store thing. I mean, look, I remember those hearings, too. Just, Justice Kavanaugh was credibly accused of, you know, sexually assaulting a 17-year-old girl. And, um, you know, Amy, what's her name, is barely qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. Your thoughts? Well, Joy, as I wrote in my piece for the Grio, Amy Coney Barrett couldn't list the five freedoms that are in the First Amendment. This is something that my intro to politics freshmen know. Uh, and this is someone who wanted to serve a lifelong appointment on the highest bench in the land. So when Lindsey Graham says, uh, you know, we am they did not ambush Katanji Brown Jackson, they were asking her insane questions that had nothing to do with the bench. How many times did she say that is not in my purview? That is not something that I've ever, uh, you know, had before the court. This is not something that you all should even know. If you want to keep my my personal life out of my uh, my judicial decisions, then 
Don't ask me these questions. So Lindsey Graham, as we know, just like Dean said with Josh Hawley, they're so disingenuous. These are the same people that stood by Donald Trump and his antics for four years as he almost tried to drag our country off of a cliff and take the rest of the world with him. And they have gone deeper and deeper. And the lack of self-respect that Republicans have, especially that was on display uh, during the Katandra Brown-Jackson hearings, just lets us know uh, the direction that the Republican Party has gone uh, since, I would argue, 2008 when Sarah Palin showed up, 2010 when the Tea Party really arrived and they are no longer the fringe. They've taken over the party full stop. And sadly, so many senators have followed suit, uh, which is a really sad day because we didn't have Republicans that were this egregious uh, just a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, they're they, and and the the issue, Dean, too, is that you know he's not even running for re-election in four and a half years. If he's so proud of his barking, you know, you know, Dixiecrat performance, screaming at the woman and not letting her um, finish her sentences, then why do you have to make a video? If you're proud of it, why'd you make a video? And by the way, just for our audience, they're going to keep on talking about Janice Rogers Brown. That's their new thing because they're like, here's a black lady, we like her. Um, uh, Brown had a record of extremism that fully justified. This is Ruth Marcus writing, justified Democrats' opposition in October 2003. The Post. Editor editorial page called Brown, one of the most unapologetically ideological nominees of either party in many years. A June 2005 editorial headlined, Reject Justice Brown, described her as a judge who has been more open about her enthusiasm for judicial adventurism than any nominee of either party in a long time, adding no senator who votes for her will have standing any longer to complain about legislating from the bench. The bottom line is, Dean— what Republicans have shown is that they pretend that they like that they want diversity too, but you can But your views have to essentially be anti whatever group you are. So you have to legislate if you're, you know, you have to legislate to basically harm people in order to prove your fealty to them. Right. As I've learned from listeners to my show, skin folk ain't always kin folk, and so it doesn't matter. It doesn't if share the same race. You have to share the same values. Here's the thing, though. Uh, Donald Trump had three choices for the Supreme Court. Did he pick a black woman? Did he pick an Hispanic woman? No, he went team white, all three. In fact, Donald Trump picked almost 230 judges. How many were black women? Two. Two. Literally two. That's the lowest since Ronald Reagan. In fact, Donald Trump's choices for federal judges of all together, the lowest of people of color uh, in decades. So when Donald Trump had a chance to put a black woman on there, he didn't do it because that would not have made Team White happy. And that's just the white right, I should say. It's not just all Team White. It's remarkable. And there's one other thing, Joy. I've noticed the white right is really upset about strong black women. If it's Vice President Harris, Maxine Waters, Judge Jackson, or someone named Joy Reid, because <laughs> some reason Joy Reid really triggers them. And I'm so proud when you do. It makes my heart grow three sizes. <laughs> I live inside their heads rent-free. I don't even pay rent. You know, and Christina, the thing is, right, you, they even then they deployed, you know, Tim Scott to, like, moan and complain that, you know, I was one of many people who were, you know, I feel bad for him. He is somebody who is going to go into the history books as having voted against this African-American woman. Representation matters. His representation matters as a black man in the United States Senate. But if he was to say that, they would turn on him. So he has Absolutely. to essentially endorse, right, white powers structure and he cannot step off that 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 you know that team for not even a little i feel sorry for him that he has to go into the history books this way but apparently that's where he wants to be I mean, Joy, in for a penny and for a pound. I mean, you know, if he was that distraught, he could leave the party. He's had several choices. I mean, he he stood by Donald Trump for four years. And so, you know, I, I like to think of it this way. Everything that I do in my life 
is to make my ancestors happy and to really help sort of lead a life to acknowledge and honor the sacrifices they made. Tim Scott will have to face his ancestors one day. I don't know what kind of people they were, but he will have to answer for all the choices he's made, all the decisions. He said that Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination was historic and then said that she was a radical justice, could not provide any receipts for that statement, but just parroted a lot of the Republican talking points. And so, yes, on the days that I have compassion in my heart, I look at people like Clarence Thomas and people like Tim Scott and actually wonder what happened to you in your life? What is going on so that you have decided to cast your lot with people who have who have gone out of their way to make sure that inequity uh, and that people of color, poor people, the, the people who are in need in this country uh, are the least among them. And so the days that I don't have compassion for Tim Scott, uh, I, I, I view that he has made his bed. He lays yep. in it at night and he seems quite happy with the choices that he's making. And baby, you had one shot to make a difference and, and put yourself in the history books. You had police reform. And I'm going to repeat what I tweeted since you didn't like it. You let Lindsey Graham dog walk you on that. He put the sheriffs against you when there was an agreement that you were negotiating. This could have been your bill, sir. You decided to back down from police reform when you let that man, your fellow South Carolina, who, who did not have your back, did not let you make history, did not let you have a big accomplishment. Don't blame that on me. Blame that on him. Have a conversation with them. Uh, Dean Obadala, Christina Greer, thank you very much. Coming up, a Florida high school junior takes a stand against Governor DeSantis's Don't Say Gay Bill, and their name is Will Larkins, and they join me next. America is a nation filled with contradictions. Today, we saw the first black woman celebrate her historic ascension to the highest court in the land. At the same time, hundreds of thousands of LGBTQ kids have become the victims of craven Republican politicians. According to NBC News, state lawmakers have proposed a record 238 bills that would limit the rights of LGBTQ people just this year alone. That is more than three per day. Half of them target transgender people specifically. These bills, like Florida's Don't Say Gay bill, would restrict talking about LGBTQ issues in schools, allow religious exemptions to discriminate, and limit trans people's ability to play sports or receive gender-affirming health care. These bills are not passed in a vacuum. They have, a, they have very real consequences. According to the CDC, one in four teenagers who identified as LGBTQ said they attempted suicide during the first half of last year. But many of these kids are fighting back. More than 500 students staged a massive walkout at a high school in Winter Park, Florida, in protest of the Don't Say Gay bill. The walkout was organized by Will Larkins, the president and a co-founder of the school's Queer Student Union. Will testified before a Florida Senate committee when Don't Say Gay was under consideration. I've heard different members of the legislature say something along the lines of parents know what's best for their kids. When it comes to the queer community, that is not true. If parents know what's best for their kids, why did my best friend get kicked out of his house and have to live with me? Why is 40% of the homeless youth queer while only making up 5% of the general population? Why do so many kids get abused for their sexuality and gender identity? If for some reason a queer kid comes out to a teacher and it turns into a discussion and the parents have the right to know that, that endangers us when we're already in danger. 
Joining me now is Will Larkins, a high school junior and president and co-founder of the Queer Student Alliance at Winter Park High School in Florida. Um, every time I have a young Florida uh, student on, I am amazed and feel much more confident about our future. Will, thank you for being here. So talk about, um, I want to talk to you just about how this law is impacting students like you in the real world. Um, for the people who are in favor of this Don't Say Gay bill, and they say, well, it's just because you shouldn't be talking about sexuality in schools to third graders. What would be your response to them? I would argue that teaching about sexuality and gender identity is the most vital in those formative years. I grew up not knowing that the LGBTQ community existed and my classmates didn't either. And because I was the only uh, non-binary person that I knew, um, and it was very obvious to other people that I wasn't like, like other boys. Um, I dealt with a lot of bullying and I dealt with a lot of self-hatred. I didn't know why I was the way I was. And if someone had just told me in, in K through third, um, that being, you know, not being like this is okay. Um, the course of my childhood would have been completely different. And, you know, it, it strikes me, something that you said in your testimony to, to me is so powerful. These laws are not about the kids. They're about their parents. They're about trying to get their parents to vote a certain way by scaring them and making them think that the mechanics of sex are going to be taught in school, which is ridiculous and it would never happen. So, I mean, do it, does it offend you that students, that kids are being used, not because anyone cares about the kids, but just to get their parents to vote a certain way? Absolutely. I mean, they are putting an entire generation of LGBTQ people in danger in order to push this false and disgusting narrative. Um, and first of all, there was an amendment filed by a Republican senator in the Appropriations Committee that would change the wording from sexuality and gender identity to human sexuality, and it was voted down by Republicans. They're not you know, trying to get sex ed, which was never being taught in K through third out of the classrooms, they are attacking queer people. And it doesn't even affect just K through 12. If you actually have read the bill, it says K through 12 or K through third or through 12 in a manner mm -hmm. um, deemed inappropriate. And, and can, just from a, a personal level, you talked about the fact that, you know, in your testimony, you said you, know, you had a friend that had to come and live with you. I mean, just to reiterate for those in the audience who may not have, you know, queer people in their lives or may not know they do, what is it like as a kid to know that you can't even talk about your own or your parents or your friends' identities? It's, it's really scary. I mean, being queer and being surrounded by other queer people— Every single one of us, even people like, like even me, I was lucky enough to be with parents that I never feared would abuse or kick me out for being myself. But I still went through extremely traumatic things because of my identity. And every single queer person I know, especially being the president of the Queer Student Union, every single queer person I know has gone through something horrible for it. And if we're taking away school, which is... Um, supposed to be a safe space. So, so many of my friends are literally living homeless and school is where they are able to be amongst peers and able to be somewhere safe. And now we're trying to, we're attacking that. We're making it less safe. We're making teachers feel less safe to talk about these important subjects all the way through senior year, not just in K through third.
And have you heard from teachers? Um, because this bill targets them too. Uh, absolutely. You know, there's already it, teachers, even, you know, teachers in Florida and all across America are already not being treated as well as they should. They're underpaid. They are overworked. And um, I've actually had a couple teachers this year quit in the middle because they got better paying jobs. Um, and I have I have a teacher who is not returning next year because they have to leave the state because of the anti-trans attacks and their son is trans. And one of the biggest parts of their teaching is being there for queer kids and they're not going to be able to in the way that they would like. I, I know so many teachers who are thinking of leaving because they're not able to safely be there for queer people, which makes it even worse for us. Yeah, indeed. Well, Will Arkins, um, thank you so much for being here. I wish I had been as together as a 17-year-old as you are. Thank you for your advocacy. You're doing great work. Please promise me you'll come back. We would love to have you back on the show. I will be back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you guys. Peace and thank love. Thank you. Peace and love. Cheers. Okay. That is tonight's readout. What a wonderful kid. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.